Bibles with you, you can go ahead and head over there. We'll be looking at Daniel chapter 1 today, um, but just wanting to kind of start the series off well and, and kind of give some background and all that sort of information. Um, Daniel is probably one of the most popular books of the Bible for children's stories, right? Like we, as kids, a lot of people hear these stories of the lion's den and the dancing in the fiery furnace and the the fingerprint writing on the wall and these just incredible stories that get kids excited about the Bible. But what I hope to do today and what we hope to do through this series is to show you the Bible is not just a, a book for children, but it's for all ages, You can see from the sermon graphic behind, the general theme of the entire series is is that of courage. We're going to see that over and over again. Courage means strength in the face of pain or grief. And what we're going to say today is in the face of pressure. Strength in the face of pressure. I once heard a quote and it said, Believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. And that's what we're going to see Daniel do here. Daniel and his friends, they believe in something so much, they're willing to sacrifice everything they have to the point of death. By way of introduction, like I said, I, I want to start Daniel and kind of look at the, the who, the what, the where, the when of, the Bible, of this book and kind of just set the flow of where it was written, who it was written by, when it was written, and what for. And so starting right off with the who... The book of Daniel, we believe, was written by the prophet Daniel, as it's named Daniel. We believe a lot of the books that have names are authored by those people. And we'll see the, the first-person usage of, uh, first-person point-of-view usage in the second half of the book. Um, but this first half, it doesn't. Like, it kind of starts off differently. And so, we believe here at Stonebridge that the book of Daniel was written by the prophet Daniel, that we will see the main character in this story. But I want to let you guys know that there are skeptics out there that believe otherwise, which we may have you asking, like, well, why would you even bring that up? Well, our hope is that you are not just learning about the book of Daniel from the 35 or with me 45 minutes a week that you get from my preaching. We hope that there's more that you're digging into and trying to learn more and more about the book because I can't even touch off of everything that the book of Daniel covers and even just one chapter in 35 minutes. And so we hope that you're, you're going out and you're studying it on your own, you're reading commentaries, listening to other sermons, whatever it may be, to learn more and more about Daniel. But with that, you may come across that there are skeptics out there that believe that there's actually two different authors. And so I want to address that and give reasons why not, and then move on from it. And so there are three main reasons why skeptics would believe that. First is that, as I said, the first half of the book of, uh, of Daniel is written in a third-person point of view. You know, he's saying Daniel did this, Daniel did that, Daniel did this. And that's a little odd if Daniel wrote the book for him to be writing it in a third-person point of view. But it's simply just a literary style. And it shows historical accurateness in the, in the storytelling that Daniel does. And it's not, it's not odd within Scripture, even in just the world around them, or even just the world around us now. Moses wrote in third person at times. Paul writes in third person at times. Daniel does at times in here too. 
If you talk to me long enough, if we have a long enough conversation, I may slip in and out of third person just because I'm a little wonky like that. But, you know, it just, others do that as well too. Like you watch celebrities doing interviews or actors and they kind of slip in and out of third person. So it's just a, it's just a literary style. It doesn't mean that it's two different people telling the story. Second reason skeptics believe there's two authors is the prophecies. The second half of the book of Daniel is all prophetic, all looking towards future events from this book and others. And so in those chapters, in chapters 7 through 12, they are very, very detailed and accurate to the point that they will actually prophesize by name the person that will overthrow Babylon and the years that it will happen in. And for skeptics, they say, well, that's just no way that's possible. Again, we believe that this book was written right as the book picks up, right after the Babylonian exile starts. And so about the 6th century BC is when we believe this was written. But it's prophesying things 400 years into the future. So people will say there's no way that, they could, that Daniel could have wrote something, prophesying something that would happen 400 years in the future with the exactness that it does. To which I reply... We have a big God, and he knows everything. And if God chooses to use Daniel, because that's also, we actually believe, you know, the Holy Spirit is actually the author of this whole thing, and is just breathing through Daniel to pen these words. So if the Holy Spirit wants to inspire Daniel in such a way that he can say exactly who the person is that want, that's going to overthrow Babylon, he can do that because he's God. As the African Bible commentary states, to refuse to accept predictive elements in Scripture is not only to deny the Bible, but also to question the existence of an all-knowing personal God who has power to predict and reveal minute details of future events. God has the power to predict whatever he wants. We want to talk about prophecies and and the the predictive elements in Scripture. This whole book is filled with predictive elements. I point you to the cross. That was predicted thousands of years before it happened. And the second coming of Jesus is predicted even further down the line, even more thousands of years later, with exact names and exact instances of how Jesus would be crucified. So if you want to say that Daniel didn't author the book because it's too prophetic— then we better question what you believe about the whole of the Bible. The third reason that skeptics will say that there is possibly two authors, and this one's possibly the best argument, is that there's two different languages that this book was written in. Again, to us, we don't necessarily read that. We read it in our English Standard Version, and it just reads like one language all the way through. But the original manuscripts, the original language that it was written in, there's two different languages. So it starts off first in Hebrew, the, the language of the Israelites in the first chapter. And then the second chapter, it switches to Aramaic, which is a, a royal language, a priestly or a kingly language of the world around them. And then in chapter 8, it switches back to Hebrew. And so that's, that's pretty confusing. Like I said, probably one of the best arguments like, I wouldn't be up here preaching and all of a sudden just switch into preaching in Polish halfway through and then switch back to English and back and forth. Like, that wouldn't make sense, and we wouldn't expect that in a book that we were reading either. But the changing language is also simply explained by the topics that are included in each of those chapters. 
Chapters 2, two through 7, which were the ones written in Aramaic, are written that way due to the fact that those chapters concern Gentile worldly kings whose activity the world would have wanted to know about. The world would have possibly come to this letter, to this book, and wanted to know what happened at this time to get the historical accurateness. So it's written to the world around them. Chapter 1 and chapters 8 through 12 are written specifically to the Hebrews, to the Jews. And so that's, he's writing it to them in a language that they are native to because it just affects them. So when we look at the changing languages, we have to understand what the topics are that are coming in and out of there. The fact that Daniel wrote this book, the one that bears his name, it's just simply assumed by the whole of the Bible. This book as well, Daniel 8.1, Daniel 9.2, Daniel 9.20, and Daniel 10.2, all assume that Daniel is the author of this book. And the fact that he's an actual historical person is assumed by the Bible as well. In Ezekiel chapter 14, 14, uh, Ezekiel 14, 20, and Ezekiel 28, 3, as well as Jesus talks about Daniel as an actual historical figure in Matthew 25, 24, 15, and Mark 13, 14. I had all those written down. I just don't have that memorized, promise you. Like and if you need to know those, you need reference to those, I can get them to you later. But this, this idea that Daniel is the author, he's an actual historical person, is just assumed by our Bible. And so we have to take that into account. That is the best proof for this being written by the prophet. We believe that this is God's word that is completely without error, and it is breathed by God into these human authors. And so if it says it was written by Daniel, we believe that it was. Other introductory aspects of the book of Daniel... We know that there are different parts of the Bible. Like we have the whole of the Bible, we break it up into different sections. Like we have Old Testament history, New Testament history, and Gospels. Daniel finds itself in a section called the Major Prophets. And the Major Prophets are just something looking, they're just predicting the future of Israel, the surrounding countries, and the world as a whole. But Daniel is unique even in the Major Prophets because it has a section called Apocalyptic Literature. And what that is pointing to, the apocalyptic literature, is the end times. And that's unique because it's Daniel, it's Revelation, a little bit in the Gospels, and a little bit in 1 Thessalonians. And that's about it, that we can understand what may happen at the end times. So Daniel's really important for us to know so that we can have an idea of what may be coming as we look to the end times, when Jesus returns. This book was written shortly thereafter the Babylonian exile, while Daniel found himself in Babylon, which by history we know the Babylonian exile happened in about 605 BC. And Daniel was among one of the first groups of Israelites to be taken captive. He was possibly a teenager at the time, and I'll point that out when we read that in this first section here. The country has been overthrown, and they are now going to be living in exile. Their, their temple has been destroyed. The country has been just completely annihilated. And everyone left from the Israelites, and most of what's left living of the Israelites has been taken into captivity. Imagine the feelings of these people. They have been told for hundreds of years that they were a chosen people, and that this land was their promised land, that God was giving it to them. And they lived there for years. But because of their gross sin, they had been taken away from them. 
Imagine what they could be possibly thinking and feeling. Has God forsaken them? Has he abandoned them? Was he really all that powerful? Was he not powerful enough to stop the Babylonians? Those are just a few of the thoughts that they may be having. Today, as I read through the first chapter, we will see three main points in this chapter as we read through it. And I'll break it up as we read through it into those sections and explain each one of them. But our three main points for today as we look at Daniel 1 are pressure, perseverance, and provision. We'll see the pressure that Daniel and his friends feel, the way that they persevere through that pressure, and the provision that God gives them. So follow along as I read our first section, Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. We'll stop there. This is the pressure that we see on these young men right away as they come into Babylon. The most important part of that, that, that change, that pressure, is the last section there, this, this name change that we see put on these young men. And that may not seem as important to us, but names were really, really important to the Israelites. So all of the Israelite men's name before they came in were pointing to the God of Israel, Yahweh, that L at the end of Daniel. That points to the God of Israel. So every time someone referred to him, Daniel, Daniel, he's reminded of the fact that he is God, that he is united with God, that he is serving the one true God. He is God's man. But as they're taken into Babylon, they're given names to point to the satanic false gods of Babylon. Belteshazzar, those first three letters, Bel is the name of the Babylonian God. These gods were connected with ritualistic sex and child sacrifice. That's what they represented. And so now every day as he walks through the market and living in the kingdom, he's hearing this name, Belteshazzar. It's just an indoctrination. Really what they're trying to do is they're trying to force Babylonian religion on these young men trying to brainwash them. It was an attempt to change their culture, their mindset, and religion. It's a form of something called assimilation. So assimilation is just a way of trying to convert people into our mindset. And Babylonians were unique in how they did that when they overran countries and they took over countries. So many countries, when they would invade and take over another country, they would just wipe out the whole country, just kill everyone that they could and just then inhabit the country. Other countries would come in and they would 
inhabit, or they would take it over, but they would take some of the people out to be captives, but yet they would let them live as they did in their new country. Think of the New Testament, how the Romans are over the, the Israelites, but yet the Israelites still get to keep their religion and their beliefs. But the Babylonians were unique because they wanted to make their captives into Babylonians. They wanted to assimilate them, change their, their beliefs, their culture, everything about them. They wanted to change it into Babylonian. And the reason they did this was because if I start to believe that I'm a Babylonian, I start to buy into some of these cultures and beliefs, within a couple of generations, my kids don't know anything about Israel, anything about my homeland. And they just assume the Babylonian way. It's a way to stop things from rising up from within the country. Because they just accept the Babylonian rule. Daniel and his friends were some of these people that were taken away. And it could have been really easy for them to get frustrated at the situation they were living in. We see the statement in verse 4. That's where I said it. It, was po- it was probable that Daniel and his friends were teenagers. It says that they were youths without blemish. They were, they were the finest young men who were chosen, the nobles of the royal families. These young men were Israelite royalty, and now here they are as servants in Babylon. Now, being a servant isn't necessarily the worst thing that could happen to these young men. And I know I say that, and it almost is like, really? How is being a servant from a, from a king or like a, in a nobility to a servant not bad? Well, the servants were better taken care of than a lot of other people in the country around them. And we can see that. They were, given the, they were able to live in the temple. They were given an education. They were given the best foods and wines. But it's definitely going to put them at the front lines of cultural pressure. And we see that in verse 5, this food and this wine that are given to these young men. If you know anything about Leviticus, or if you've read through parts of that, you can know, or just know Israelite history, the Jews have very strict food guidelines. They still live up to this day. And so for them to come into Babylon and be told, here, just eat whatever the king is eating. The food and the drink that Babylonians were eating were vastly opposed to what was the Israelite customs and rituals. The trainings and things they were given were in sharp contrast to their beliefs. Now, as I thought about this idea of someone being pressured to compromise their, their strong-held beliefs and their convictions, I thought of my youngest son. See, Axel, no matter what, so Andrea and I are Hawkeyes. We are through and through. That's who we are. Andrea graduated from the University of Iowa. I've been a Hawkeye most of my life. And like a good son, Deacon just falls in line, an obedient child, and he just agrees with the Hawkeyes. But our son Axel here, He's our happy little cyclone, right? No matter how much we mock and we ridicule and we pick on him for his beliefs and we try to pressure him away from being a cyclone, he holds true. See, he had this really great uh, uh, babysitter when he was younger. And I do mean she was great. She was a godly young woman and loved our kids to death. But she was a fifth-generation cyclone, so I should have known better when I allowed her into my home. 
And because of her, and she would take Axel to ISU stuff and take him around Ames and show him stuff and bought him jerseys and just this horrific stuff coming into our home. He was converted. And for years, we've tried to bring him back. But he is passionate. He is standing strong that he will be a cyclone. We drive past ISU, and he'll point to the stadium and be like, I'm going to play basketball for them someday, Dad. I hope he knows how he's going to pay for college, because I'm sure not paying for a cyclone education. As he hovers down. This may make you stop and question, like, well, what is he actually comparing this to? Is he saying that the cyclones are like the evil Babylonians, or is it the Hawkeyes? I'm sure most of you can assume where I'm going with this. But just to prove that I'm right, I will use this. Um, Cornerstone Ames has over 3,000 people in their church, something like that, like 3,000, 4,000. I don't know anymore. Veritas, the Salt Network Church in Iowa City, has about 1,000. So clearly ISU needs Jesus more than Iowa. Yeah, right, right? That's... All right, moving on. Most likely, these four young men in this story were not the only Israelites that were chosen for this position. There were most likely other Israelites who were chosen for this. But they're the ones we know of, and they're the ones that God chose to use because they were faithful in the face of pressure. They stood firm for their convictions. And as we look at the next section, we're going to see how these men were able to persevere for God. So follow along again as I read, starting at verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you say. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So right away we see in those first couple of lines in verse 8, we see how Daniel was able to persevere. It says, but Daniel resolved. Other translations say that he made up his mind or that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. This gives us a glimpse into how to overcome pressure. Peer pressure will come. It is, it is going to come no matter what. And this is not just for teenagers and children and college students. This is for everyone. We'll feel peer pressure to go against our strong-held convictions for our whole life. And if we want to overcome that temptation to give in, that pressure, we have to have a game plan. We have to resolve in our hearts and know what we believe. Just because we've trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior does not mean that life is going to be easy. And that is what these men are facing. They're being tempted with the best food and drink in the kingdom. But they made up their mind not to give in. 
They said, no, this is what we believe. These are the convictions that we have. These are God's commands. And we are not going to turn against them. Like we said, it, it could have been easy for Daniel and his friends to say, okay, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. No one's probably even going to know if we eat this. There's other Israelite men and women who are eating it now. Let's just do it to try and save ourselves. They could have felt betrayed. They could have felt abandoned. They could have asked that old question, what have you done for me lately, God? They could have even started to question if God was even real. If God is so great and powerful, why are we living in captivity? What's a little bit of the king's meat when we're living in captivity, God? And they may have still been thinking those things and wrestling with that in their own lives. But they had the conviction and they persevered. They decided that no matter what kind of situation they were in, they were going to stay true to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. That could have meant some horrific things for them to not eat this food. It seems so simple, right? They just didn't want to eat the food. This could have meant that they could have been tortured at the hands of the wicked King Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to do a little bit of further study, just research how wicked and how horrific Nebuchadnezzar was. Just to state, he was the king of all of the world at that time. Was overthrowing dozens and dozens of countries. You don't run all of the known world and lead dozens of conquering countries, through dozens of conquering countries, by being a nice guy. That just doesn't happen. He was a bad guy. These men could have been killed. Nebuchadnezzar could have easily heard what was going on and just killed them, right? And, and the chief eunuch says that. He's even afraid. If I let you do this, my life is in danger, not just yours. Everyone's life that is associated with you will be in danger. Nebuchadnezzar will just kill us all if he hears about this. But that's not what happened. They were obedient to God and they persevered for God. It's also important to see how Daniel goes about making this request. Where it's not just this temper tantrum by like a little toddler. I don't want to eat my dinner. No, get this nasty food away from me. Gross. I hate beef. I hate meat, pork. Gross. It's not that at all. It says God gave Daniel favor. He resolved in his heart. And then it says, therefore, he asked the chief. He goes in and he simply asks, would it be possible if, could I please? And then that's when the, the, eunuch, the chief eunuch is like, ah, I don't know, this is scary. And he's like, I get it. Let me, let me come up with a plan for you. What if you just, you know, we have to stand within him in front of the king in three years. Give us 10 days. Just try it out for 10 days. And in 10 days, we'll reassess the situation and see how it is. He doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't demand his own way. He comes with a plan. And he comes very humbly asking permission. He also doesn't compromise his beliefs, though. Again, when I thought of the topic of, of not compromising our, our, our convictions and the beliefs that we have and persevering during, in the face of surmounting pressure, I thought of the, to thought of the story of Gal Gadot. Which some of you, when I just say that name, you may not even recognize it at first, right? It's like, who is that? Well, I have a picture for us. She's Wonder Woman, right? Who doesn't love Wonder Woman? She's the newest Wonder Woman in the newer DC movies and all of those. 
Um, but what's uncompromising for me about the story of Gal Gadot is that she was attached to the Me Too movement. See, before the first Wonder Woman movie, she was just a supporting actress and a model. And very few people knew who she was. But the first movie was a blockbuster and it blew up and her image and her popularity skyrocketed. So, of course, the studio wants to do what they always want to do when movies make blockbusters. We've got to crank out 17 more movies with this person attached to it. So they started right away. And you know what? This was such a success. We need to just replicate it. So we'll grab the director, the producer, and the main actress, and we'll just recreate it. Different storyline. We'll do the whole thing over again. But that's when the, the issue happened. See, the producer of the, the second film had been accused, the producer of both of the films had been accused of sexual harassment by multiple women. But the film studio, they didn't want to refine, didn't want to find a new producer. They didn't want to have to backtrack. They'd already started pre-production and they knew that would take time to find somebody. It would cost money and they didn't want to go through all that hassle. They just wanted to push the next movie out. But Wonder Woman stood firm and she said, that's fine. If you want to make the movie with this man, we'll do it. But I, I cannot work. I will not work with a man like this or anyone like him. So this is what you'll choose. You choose either him or me. She stood firm on what she knew was right. And eventually, the studio saw what was right, and they cut ties with the producer as well. It's hard sometimes to stand strong in the face of pressure. We're going to have pressure coming in and out of our lives, pressure to, to give in. Times will get harder and harder. But just like Daniel, when we have a game plan and we know what God's word tells us, we can persevere. And if we persevere in the face of pressure, we will see that God will provide what we need. And that's what we see in this last section. God's provision for these, next, for these young men. Follow along as I read the last section, starting at verse 15. It says, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away the food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God provides provision. The word provision is defined as an action of providing or supplying something for use, something that is needed to use. That is the provision that God is giving them. That's what happens in verse 17. We see God providing them exactly what they will need. He gives them learning and understanding 
He gives Daniel the ability to interpret visions and dreams, and that is going to be super helpful in the next coming chapters. The ability for them to interpret dreams will be absolutely necessary for them to continue in this Babylonian kingdom. God granted them favor. Something that isn't necessarily in this passage, but I believe can be inferred in this chapter and in the rest of the book as well. Something that helped Daniel persevere is the friend group that he had. See, Daniel's not just on an island by himself in Babylon. It's not just him against the world trying to get through his time in Babylon. No, God provides him with a godly friend group. These three young men that are there with him, we're going to see them over and over again throughout the book. They're there to help provide accountability, encouragement. At times we'll see Daniel going to them and asking them to pray for him for wisdom. Without this group of people in his life, holding him accountable, helping him, spurring him on to good works, I don't know if Daniel would have been able to get through everything that he got through. And that's important for us to see. You teenagers, kids, it's important for you to surround yourselves with godly men and women, people like you that share your convictions, share your morals, share your beliefs so that you can unite in the face of pressure. You can persevere because you know you have at least a few people that have your back no matter what. But that isn't just for use. We as adults need that as well too. We need people in our lives to help guide us, to lead us, to encourage us, to hold us accountable. That is why we talk so much about connection in this church and why we are here on on Sundays to be here as a group to hold each other accountable. We meet throughout the week to, to have connections, to pray for one another, to encourage one another. It's vitally important and it's and it's awesome that as we start a new series in Daniel, when we look back to just last week and we are ending Philippians, what was the main thrust of last week? Friendships. That was the whole thing last week was the importance of friendships. And we see that again in Daniel. We see that throughout the Bible, the importance of friendships and people to come alongside us. This is important to God and it's important to us here too. Now, because these men do not stray away from God, he rewards their faithfulness. Now, it may not have been the full answer to their prayers. I'm sure these men were praying for deliverance from the persecution and pressure that they were were facing. They could have been praying for God to regroup Israel, to save them from the hands of this wicked king, or even just for them to be able to go back to their home country. That could have been the depths of their heart cries, the depths of their prayers. But God knew that's not what they needed at this moment. And so he gave them what they needed. He knew what it was that they needed. He knows what we need. It may not always be an answer to all of our prayers, but God will give us what we need. Author, theologian, and professor Joyce Baldwin, I think, says it best about these young men, she says more was at stake than their personal reputation or even their personal faith. As representatives of the only God, they needed to prove in Babylon's highly competitive setting that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. High intelligence and hard work alone did not account for their success, for their success, but their wisdom was God's gift. It wasn't just that they were the smartest, best, brightest, most attractive, anything like that. That wasn't just it. 
Those were all a gift from God, and so was everything that God was giving them. The fact that they were faithful to him, God provided them with this. And they desperately needed that in the face of what they were surrounded with in Babylon. I'm so excited to walk through this series with you and see Daniel's going to stay in this country for 60 years. But God is going to continue to provide him what he needs. And he is going to be an incredible witness in this wicked country. We're going to see this cycle through the next six chapters of the book of Daniel. Over and over again, the pressure and the perseverance and the provision that God provides them. Daniel and his friends are going to be pushed to the limit over and over again. Pushed to the absolute breaking point of pressure. And over and over again, we will see them persevering. And, and standing strong on their convictions. And as we sit here in 2020, in a very much post-Christian America, we can learn a lot from Daniel and his friends. You will constantly feel the pressure to compromise your morals, your beliefs, your convictions, and your standards by a world that believes very different than what God's word teaches us. But we need to stand firm on those beliefs. We need to stand firm for what we believe. What will it take for you to have courage today in the face of the pressure that you are feeling? God will provide what you need to get through this day, maybe even just this moment, as you feel the pressure over and over again. I encourage you, find a godly group of people to surround yourselves with, to help encourage you and to hold you accountable. Follow God's word. Immerse yourself in God's word so you know what he's teaching you. And trust that through the storms of the life, he is good and he is in control. We will continue to feel pressure. But God will provide provision to those that persevere. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this passage. I thank you for the book of Daniel. And I pray that you can help us to see what it means to be courageous through this book as we over and over again feel the the pressure to conform, the pressure to let go of our convictions and our morals. God, I, I pray that you help us to just hold true to them. We know that you are good and you are in control and you wrote these words thousands of years ago so that we could read them today and know that we can find courage in your word alone. I pray for the people here today. I don't know what all of them are feeling for the pressure. The pressure from the world, the pressure from maybe their job, maybe from friends, maybe from family that that don't believe as they believe. The pressure to just go against their convictions, and their beliefs. But God, I pray that you give them the ability to just persevere through that. Help them to be strong. Thank you, God, for this word and for this day. In your name we pray. Jesus, amen.